You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. There are now over 2,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus on the island of Ireland. 29 people north and south have died. Yesterday, the number of people who died south of the border more than doubled. Over half of reported cases are in Dublin, just under a quarter are health workers, and there have been clusters of infection found in many nursing homes and hospitals. Supplies of personal protection equipment for health workers are running low, and a big delivery from China is expected on Sunday. Worldwide, there are over 530,000 confirmed cases of the virus now. The highest number is in the United States. There was a big rise yesterday in Australia. Almost 25,000 people have died. The highest death toll is in Italy. Here, not long after people across the country took a moment to collectively applaud healthcare workers, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Dr. Tony Hulhan, gave an update on the outbreak here. We have diagnosed today 255 additional cases of COVID-19, bringing the total diagnosed so far to 1,819. We're reporting that there have been an additional uh, 10 deaths recorded, bringing our total to 19. Of those 19, 13 are male, and the median age of those who have died is 79, and we'd like to express our condolences to the families and friends of all those uh, who have died as a result of COVID-19. In terms of breakdown of the cases to to midnight on Tuesday night of this week, 1,383 cases, 55% of those were male. Uh, There were 66 clusters of infection, nine of which were in nursing homes, eight in hospitals and two in community and long-stay environments. That's Dr Tony Houlihan speaking last night. Let's speak to our science correspondent, George Lee, who was at last night's health briefing and is with us now. George, what more do we know from what Dr Tony Houlihan said last night about those who've died? We know that uh, 70 or 68% of them are male. Uh, this is of the total 19 who have died and that 32% are female. And it's interesting that that's a kind of pattern, more males than females that has been seen elsewhere in the world, and people scramble for an explanation. Uh, Sometimes people say perhaps it is lifestyle issues that men smoked more than women, but it's very difficult. There's no answer to that, but that is a pattern that's seen. Also, the fact that the age, the average age, or actually it's the median age, was 79 years. And uh, the thing about median age is that it's not exactly, it's only the same as an average age if you got what's called a normal distribution so you could have had a few people well below that age and a lot of people just above that age to get a 79 so it doesn't mean that everybody who has died is 79 years old typically some of them could have been younger I think it's important for people to kind of just note that Uh, but it does show how vulnerable older people are to this disease and I think that that is a particular worry um, uh, for families around the country because they have done a survey uh, uh, and they do the survey once or twice a week uh, they use um, oh, um, a kind of opinion um, company, people who do those surveys for them, and they find that 75% per pe- of people are worried at the moment about their personal health in relation to COVID, but that 77% are worried about the health of their family and friends. So the age groups there, that that's, that's everybody's family. It isn't a question of age at all. It's, a, it's us all, and we all know who those 
kind of people are in our own families and set up. So that's particularly worrying, I think, for them. And they're very worried about the issue of clusters. So they're going to meet again today. This is the National um, uh, Public Health Emergency Team. They have already met twice this week, which is unusual. But the fact that they're meeting a third time is because of the amount of work that they have to get through and the fact that it's difficult and some difficult decisions have to be made. And they're particularly worried about what they're seeing on those clusters in nursing homes, in hospitals, in long-stay environments, those kind of places. And they're also worried about those clusters where they've got more than more than two or three cases or two or three or more cases. And then they're also worried what they're looking at is the rate of increase and the pattern of increase to uh, intensive care units um, in hospitals because that's really a critical issue. Typically, we know now from international studies and they've been told from the European Centre for Disease Control that those who go to in, uh, intensive care in hospital typically are in those rooms in those beds for two weeks and when you see this wave of or fear of a wave of extra illness coming that's something that they want to turn their attention to yes tony hoolan said as you mentioned there he was concerned about the clustering of cases the rate of community infection and the increase in admissions to icu and they're meeting for the third time the national public health emergency team meeting for the third time this week today will there be a change of plan I don't know if it's a change of plan, but more of a development uh, to see what else. Remember what they've got to do is they've got to slow the spread of the virus. That is the number one thing they need to do and make sure that so so to make sure to keep the pressure off those people on the front line of the health service. And that's where we all play our part. And so I don't think it's a, it's it's new developments, but, but 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 what else can they do? Is there stuff that they can do in those uh, nursing home settings or in the community care settings which can help to reduce the number of clusters? So they may or may not have recommendations in relation to that. We don't know, but uh, they have been considering these things now for the last, well, yesterday, and we'll be doing it again today. Are some hospitals going to be set aside to deal with virus cases and some... Uh, to deal with people who don't have the virus and do we know when that's going to happen? Well we don't know when it's going to happen but um, Dr Colm Henry who's the clinical lead at the HSE last night he was explaining that because this was type of kind of developed a little bit before that, that it is possible that some hospitals could be assigned to be non-COVID hospitals in places in bigger cities like Dublin. That would be hospitals where they do ordinary uh, typical kind of hospital works like cancer care and other operations, essential operations and so on. But that that would be difficult enough in when you get outside of Dublin so they must be considering having some hospitals not associated with the COVID infections and fighting it but to carry on but they say that for those outside of Dublin where you it's important to ta- where they have a lot of patients uh, that those with COVID would be I would be segregated from the rest of the hospital group so they are indeed looking at that and that is something which was referred to as well by the European Centre for Disease Control about cohorting um, uh, COVID cases to make sure that you're reducing the risk of uh, and the uh, the overuse of person protective equipment so if you can put them all in pretty much the same place perhaps it can have some benefits at the end of the briefing Roland Lynn the deputy chief medical officer was asked to point to a curve this is where the prediction of how many cases we'll have and how long this will last to show at what stage of the outbreak that we're at and he showed it to be very early 
very early. And this was pointed to by, by the chief um, um, medical officer, Tony Houlihan, also about two days before in quite a dramatic kind of way, although he didn't intend it to be dramatic, but it did to people who were watching it. Um, there's a curve which shows this um, exponential growth in the number of cases. And it's what would happen if you didn't have community measures and all of the other measures to try and slow it. And um, then there's the curve, uh, which, and that's a very frightening curve because it's well above the capability of the health system to deal with it. Then there's the second curve, the one you aim for, which is you try and keep that peak down to a level where the health system could uh, could uh, cope. So it's a much lower um, uh, level of increase, but it takes longer overall to deal with the problem. And uh, people in dealing with it thought maybe we, we've been fighting this for weeks. We must be somewhere advanced on this curve. But when Tony pointed to it himself the other day, it was just at the very beginning. And again, uh, last night when Dr. Ronan Glynn did so, again, it was just at the beginning. We are only at the start of this. And uh, Dr. Tony Houlihan said last night there are, they are expecting significant more cases. They are preparing for the situations that they have seen in other countries, uh, which is a bit uh, worrying because they're talking about the likes of Italy, the likes of uh, China, the likes of what we've seen elsewhere in Europe and so on in Spain. But that he said that he's not necessarily saying that he's predicting that, but okay. they are preparing for the worst and hoping that they're able to slow it down. The Doyle last night passed a package of emergency measures aimed at reducing the spread of the virus and tackling its economic impact. The legislation will go to the Shannon today. The passage of the bill was paused briefly when more than 50 TDs applauded health workers. Sandra Hurley of our political staff was watching the debate. At 8 o'clock exactly, Dáil deputies joined with the whole country in a moment of solidarity with those on the front line. For the rest of the extended sitting, it wasn't quite business as usual either. With reduced attendance, physical distancing and a marathon complicated bill rushed through, introduced by the Taoiseach. This emergency has already cost lives and I want to extend my condolences to all the families who have been bereaved and the friends of those who have died as well. It's also cost people their jobs, and it is going to get worse before it gets better. People are afraid, and they're looking for reassurance from us. Fianna Fáil's Michael McGrath warned of the danger lying ahead. What we must do is ensure that the inevitable recession does not develop into a prolonged depression across our economy, and that will require very significant and seismic decisions to be made uh, in the weeks and indeed uh, in the months ahead. Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty accused banks of attempting to profit from the crisis. The Bank of Ireland, their website shows this very clearly. Somebody with a 30-year mortgage of €200,000 will pay €1,804 extra because of this three-month break to the bank. The bank, that's how much extra the bank will take from that customer. Uh, this is not acceptable. The curtailed debate resulted in a whistle-stop tour through sections of the bill. But speaker after speaker appealed for better protection for healthcare workers, including Labour TD Duncan Smith. We are hearing reports of uh, frontline nursing staff having to wash PPE in sinks and baths for reuse. This is something that's intolerable, I'm sure we all agree. And we're all praying that this plane arrives with enough equipment and we're all hoping that any efforts can be made to source equipment from within uh, the boundaries of the state. But unprecedented times elicited support across the Dáil. 
However, some of the most contentious discussion related to the rent freeze and a ban on evictions. Here's People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith. I want to uh, again welcome the Damascan conversion of, of the government on issues that before the COVID crisis were impossible and unconstitutional, issues such as a ban on evictions and a rent freeze. It's very, very welcome that these are uh, being brought in now. Several amendments on this were pressed and social distancing meant there was a roll call of deputies. Deputy Jack Chambers. No. Deputy Barry Cowan. No. Deputy Stephen Donnelly. Deputy Michal Martin. After more Deputy than Michael 10 Martin. hours of debate, the Deputy bill was passed by the Dáil. It will be debated in the Shannon today. Well now, throughout the deepening COVID crisis in Italy, people, as you know, have been taking to their balconies in the evenings to sing to their neighbours and to try to lift the spirits of their community. While opera houses all over Europe may be closed, the International Opera Choir has created a virtual chorus to bring their work to the audience instead of the audience coming to them. Their slogan, Music Never Closes. Let's talk now to Fergus Sheel, who's Artistic Director of the Irish National Opera. Very good morning to you, Fergus, and thanks for talking to us this morning. This is a very disappointing week for you, I know, professionally, as well as all the other concerns we have, because you were due to open a production of Carmen at the weekend. We were in the the Borgosh Energy Theatre, and uh, we should be performing it tonight as well. And and I suppose, like many others, we were, you know, hurtling along with with all our regular work Mm. and planning. An opera like Carmen takes two years of planning and and a lot of rehearsing, and and, and we all had to drop everything then, like everybody else in the country, obviously. So it is, it's uh, it's it's a very big loss for us. In the meantime, what you're doing is you're making some of your previous productions available uh, through the web. Is that right? So people can see them there. That's right. It's, we're quite a new company. We just started in 2018. But one of the things we've done is to try and video uh, as much as we can of our of our operas so that we can share them in different ways. Some of them on the RT player, some on uh, websites like Opera Vision, which is a European platform where opera houses all around Europe put up their own operas and on YouTube and different other channels, because we understand that not everyone can always make it to an opera. And uh, as part of our national remit, we want people all around the country to be able to see what, we, what we're doing. Um, so, yes, we have a number of operas. If people want to check on our website, which is irishnationalopera.ie, you'll see things like Madame Butterfly, Rossini's Cinderella, Orfeo and Eurydice, things like that. You mentioned Cinderella. We have a little clip here of the, the Irish international star uh, Tara, uh, Tara Erot. Um, and let's just have a quick listen to that. And actually, you can talk to us a little bit about uh, her, uh, her career and how, how people can enjoy her singing as well. But here she is in Cinderella. Uh, 
fantastic Irish mezzo-soprano, Tara Orat, uh, um, Fergus, um, I mean, she really is an international star. And she's again, really, uh, yeah, yeah go ahead. No, she's really one of the best Rossini singers in the world, and she's in demand uh, in all the major opera houses for this type of opera. And in fact, that recording you just played was from the Borgosh Energy Theatre last November, where she starred in the title role with us uh, of Cinderella. And she was just due to do the same role at the Metropolitan Opera in New York a few days ago. And she, too, then had to cancel her plans. Very tragically, on the on night of the opening night of their, of their uh, show, they, they closed down the entire company. And uh, so she had, did, she had done all the rehearsals, ready to go into theatre, you know, get, just about to get into costume when mm-hmm. she was sent home. It's very, very tragic, but at least people can see it. See her singing this amazing role online on our website. And I suppose that's the point. We've listened there um, and heard the singing, but actually, really, to appreciate opera, you need to be able to see it because it's a total visual experience as well. What would you say to to people who are opera novices? Uh, Maybe they have the opportunity now to just uh, dip their toe in the water. How would you encourage them? Yeah, this is the thing. We we all have a bit more time now, and there's, there's an amazing array of operas available online. So, you know, take a title, take something like Cinderella or Madame Butterfly, something that you, you might have heard the name of somewhere but don't really know much about it. Um, put it into Google and you'll get a full uh, production to watch. And, you know, and if you've got some nice speakers or headphones, it's a really excellent experience. And you'll find that opera houses, the Met in New York, uh, Royal Opera in London, Vienna, they're all offering streams now of, of their back catalogue of operas. And you have some of the really best singers in the world, and you can just, they're just a click away from your mouth. So don't mm-hmm. be afraid, I'd say. I'd encourage people, you know, try it out. You've got time in your hands now. Um, and and uh, I know I'm watching a lot more online than I ever <laughs> did. And presumably also online you can find information about the story so you can follow it, because a lot of these, of course, aren't going to be in English, so sometimes it's difficult, although there are subtexts uh, quite often. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. All, all, of our, all of our operas and most of these ones, well, they'll all have surtitles. That's pretty common now. So even though the singer is singing in Italian or German or whatever, um, you can follow it. And it's, it's very easy to follow. It's, it's, it's surprisingly accessible. All right, and great stories and fantastic singing and wonderful costumes and great sets and absolutely. a whole world of delight to, to explore. Indeed, it takes us out of, uh, you know, I think we all need a little bit of a release from all the, the grimness that's around us at the moment. You said it. Uh, Fergus, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. That was Thank Fergus uh, Shield from uh, the, uh, the Irish National Opera. We can talk now to Andrea Crisanti, who's a professor of microbiology at Imperial College London. He's currently on sabbatical at the University of Padua in northern Italy. Professor Crisanti, good morning and thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. Good morning to you. You led a project in the town of Po, after which no new infections were reported in the population of around 3,300 people. Will you tell us what you did? Yes, it's very simple. On the occasion of the first case, we tested everybody in the population to search for the extent of the infection. We found 89 people, which was an incredible high percentage at the time because it was already the 20th of February, so more than a month ago. We put everybody in isolation. There were about uh, 50% of uh, people that were completely asymptomatic. After nine days, uh, we tested uh, again the population. We found uh, another eight positive with a drop of the percentage of positive by 90%. 
we put those in isolation as well. And uh, since then, uh, there have not been other cases except uh, uh, a relative that was living with a, uh, with a mother that was infected. Uh, apart from that, uh, we, we haven't recorded any additional case. Of course, you can't test an entire population on a larger scale, but you can put on, on the basis of this example some uh, active uh, massive surveillance uh, around cases. So, for example, what we are proposing now is if there is somebody that uh, is ill, that telephones, make a telephone call at our health authorities saying that he might have uh, symptoms of coronavirus, we send uh, a unit there to make the test to the person, to the family, friends and neighborhood. And this is the way to uncover uh, cases, and particularly those which are asymptomatic. And uh, actually, the Veneto is the only region that, uh, at the moment, is able to control the infection. It's not spiraling out. So Okay. So can you say now for certain that people who don't have any symptoms of COVID-19 can infect other people? There is no doubt uh, about this. We have cases of new infections which were uh, living in the same house with uh, asymptomatic people. And these are the only people infected that they met because all the other were in quarantine. One other question on the testing. Can a test pick up the virus when someone is incubating it and has no symptoms? Of course, yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, the test uh, can pick up the virus because uh, as we we have just uh, submitted to the paper to a peer-reviewed journal, but the data will be soon available online, uh, we clearly show that uh, we can pick up uh, the virus uh, in asymptomatic individuals. And this asymptomatic individual, not necessarily, become ill. Many of them are able to clear the virus after nine days. But you said you put everyone into isolation, everyone including... No, 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 no. we put in isolation only the positive one. I see. Only only people who had the virus. Only people who had the virus we put in isolation, yes. Okay. And and including children, obviously. Obviously, yes. So we, yeah. uh, we found only two people who were positive for the virus uh, under the age of 20, and they were both asymptomatic. We here in Ireland are currently testing anyone who has cold or flu-like symptoms. Is that enough or should we be expanding that to, to larger populations, at least all of the contract, contact traces of confirmed cases? I, I think it should be, if you want to control the infection, you should uh, expand this to at least to the contacts if you don't want to expand to the to the neighborhood i mean there are i mean the 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 test uh, the the surveillance uh, the classical surveillance measure usually include include three levels it's called three and large circle you start with the family then the second one is the contact and the third one is the neighborhood of course they have uh, three increasing level of complexity but uh, to to include the family i think is a good practice because we very often find that family members got very very easily infected yes and uh, and also we find that uh, people living in the neighborhood uh, host a lot of asymptomatic people well, thank you very much indeed for, for filling us in on that this morning. Very enlightening. Thank you, Andrea Crisanti there, who is Professor of Microbiology at Imperial College London.
to the US next, where senators and White House negotiators have reached agreement on the biggest economic stimulus plan in American history. The $2 trillion package of measures is designed to support families and businesses that are struggling because of the coronavirus outbreak. Meanwhile, US President Donald Trump has said he'd like to see restrictions lifted and businesses reopened by Easter. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, has been telling us more. Well, if you look at the numbers, first off, the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has passed 52,000 and more than 700 people are dead. The World Health Organization has warned that America could become the new global epicenter of the virus. But despite all this, Donald Trump saying that he could see light at the end of the tunnel and that he'd like to see restrictions lifted and businesses reopened by Easter, which is less than just three weeks from now. I think what we're seeing here, once again, is the very thing that Donald Trump was accused of at the start of this whole crisis, putting the economy before public health. He told Fox News yesterday that the current shutdown could destroy the country and that you could have suicides by the thousands and instability and various chaos across America. And at a White House briefing last night, he repeated his desire to see the country reopened by Easter, describing it as a beautiful timeline. He did acknowledge, however, that the decision would be based on facts and data. His top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was at the same briefing and he said that any timeline for the reopening of the country would have to be flexible and that he didn't want to tone anything down right now. Now, it has to be said, even if Donald Trump decides to lift the recommended restrictions that he announced over a week ago, individual cities, individual states have all announced their own stay-at-home orders and various levels of lockdown, and it would then be up to those individual jurisdictions to lift their own measures if they so desire to do so. Donald Trump, however, told Fox News yesterday that he'd love to see the country opened up and raring to go by Easter. Easter's a very special day for me. And I see it's sort of in that timeline that I'm thinking about. And I say, wouldn't it be great to have all of the churches full? You know, the churches aren't allowed, essentially, to have much of a congregation there. And most of them, I watched on Sunday, online. And he was terrific, by the way. But online is never going to be like being there. So I think Easter Sunday, and you'll have packed churches all over our country. I think it would be a beautiful time. New York is the epicentre of the US outbreak and there have been some stark warnings, Brian, about a shortage of medical supplies there. Yeah, we spoke earlier about the World Health Organization warning that America could be the epicenter of the global outbreak. And then within the U.S., you have New York as the epicenter with 60 percent of all new cases coming from New York state. The problem there was so bad that the White House Coronavirus Task Force last night advised that anybody who'd left New York in recent days should put themselves in self-quarantine for the next two weeks. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has warned that his state is the canary in the coal mine and that what's happening there will be replicated across other states. He said the virus was spreading across America like a bullet train. Now, Governor Cuomo has been very critical of Donald Trump, and he's accused him of not doing enough to help the states, to help New York, particularly when it comes to dwindling stocks of medical supplies. President Trump, on the other hand, has accused Governor Cuomo of failing to stock up on ventilators back in 2015 when he had the chance. But in a press conference yesterday, the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, warned that if they don't get more medical supplies soon, the death toll will be even higher. FEMA says we're sending 400 ventilators. Really? What am I going to, what am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? 
You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only sent 400 ventilators. Agreement this morning on a $2 trillion stimulus plan. Tell us more, Brian. Yeah, it's a massive amount of money, Gavin, an eye-watering amount of money, and just agreed in the last few hours. U.S. senators and White House negotiators reaching this deal on this $2 trillion economic stimulus plan, the biggest stimulus package in U.S. history. It will provide support for families and businesses struggling because of the coronavirus outbreak. There will be one-off payments to almost all U.S. taxpayers, $360 billion for small businesses, and $500 billion for for larger industries like airlines. Now, it's this last element of the deal that was a major sticking point for Democrats, and they actually voted against an earlier version of the plan because they said it was too much of a bailout for big businesses at the expense of workers. Now, Democrats say they have secured greater oversight of how the money will be used, as well as additional funding for hospitals and healthcare workers. Yesterday, US stock markets rallied on news that a deal was close. Now that the plan has been agreed, all eyes will be on the Wall Street opening bell in the coming hours. That's our correspondent in Washington, Brian O'Donovan. Fast food chain McDonald's will temporarily close all its restaurants in Ireland and the UK. In a statement, it said all its outlets will be shut by 7pm this evening. The company said this is not a decision we're taking lightly, but one made with the well-being and safety of our employees in mind, as well as the best interests of our customers. Let's talk to our agriculture and consumer affairs correspondent, Fran McNulty, about this. I suppose it was a decision, perhaps, uh, that was inevitable um, from um, McDonald's um, and will also be one fan that will have a big impact on, uh, on potentially a big impact on producers, farmers here. Yes, a huge impact, Brian. McDonald's is a massive buyer of beef. In fact, it is the biggest buyer uh, we have of Irish beef. Every two burgers sold in Europe, in a McDonald's in Europe, comes from Ireland. That's that's the reality of the scale of what we contribute uh, to the McDonald's chain. Something like over 160 million euro worth of beef is bought by them. And this decision, as you say, it is inevitable. Everyone involved in the industry you know, deeply regrets it, but says they understand why it's a perfectly understandable decision. One of the single biggest uh, companies hit will be Dawn Meats. They have a plant in Waterford which produces the vast bulk of McDonald's burgers and as a result of this decision their business will be impacted significantly. There has been a big peak, Brian, in uh, purchasing of, of beef in retail outlets over the past number of weeks, over the past two weeks in particular. We saw a lot of bulk buying going on a number of weeks ago. That has helped the trade, but 30% of, of beef uh, that is is exported from this country goes into food service, goes into restaurants, uh, uh, garage chains, uh, food outlets. And that business has been massively hit uh, in the past couple of weeks. And so the overall impact on the beef trade as a result of what's happening has been bad. Now, this closure of McDonald's makes that even worse. What's been the position in terms of beef prices in the, uh, in the marts? Um, what's been happening there? And, and is there a, an expectation, a fear that this will begin to feed through in terms of the prices that have been achieved? It is inevitable that will happen. The surge that we've just spoken about in retail over the past number of weeks has helped maintain uh, the beef beef prices somewhat. But I think everybody knows a uh, 
farmers producing beef here are producing at or in many cases below the cost of production it's an unsustainable situation uh, and that something is going to have to be done about it now because this uh, result of this more restaurants will probably close will have a detrimental impact uh, on the price of beef Uh, the president of the IFA sent a letter to the European Commissioner for Agriculture last week saying uh, that the European Commission needs to do something to support the EU beef market if there is an adverse impact as a result of COVID-19. I was speaking to senior sources in the meat industry last night. They're now saying the same thing, saying that although things are, are, are flowing, meat is being produced, decisions like this make things difficult and it is inevitable uh, that EU supports for the beef sector will need to be looked at because you will see uh, the beef sector and the demand for beef go down dramatically as restaurants close across Europe and the impact that will have when it comes back to the farmer is huge. And just finally Fran, to be clear, if there is to be some assistance or some special uh, supports put in place, it would have to be uh, or likely to be on an EU-wide basis rather than a national initiative, is that the case? Yes, and that's the way it works. And the European Commission has discussed what it will do about COVID-19. There is a range of measures and responses have been discussed. Atisha raised it uh, at the last uh, the heads of state meeting, a, a virtual meeting that took place uh, via, via video conference. So they know something is coming, but beef is just one of the sectors that is going to be impacted, Brian. So an overall package of what has to be done will have to be put in place. And we know that the reality is farmers are already under pressure, But and we know as well that even though we're probably buying buying more meat to have at home because we're eating at home because restaurants are closed. The type of meat we buy for home is different uh, to what goes into the service industry. We tend to have more diced meats, more minces, and the steak and the better cuts are sold in the restaurants and outlets. So the value of what we buy, even though we might be buying a little more, is much less. And that's the big problem. That's not just a problem Mm -hmm. for us here. That will be a problem across Europe. Very good. Fran McNulty, Agriculture Consumer Affairs Correspondent. Thank you for that. Museums and art galleries around the country have also been forced to close because of COVID-19 restrictions. However, many are making their art available online and some are even encouraging members of the public to get creative themselves. Our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley reports. Welcome to the Irish Museum of Modern Art. I'm Rachel Thomas, the Head of Exhibitions, and we're here today in the West Wing of the museum with the exhibition called A Consummate Joy by the artist Bartika. This is Imma's YouTube channel show. is just one of the ways the Irish Museum of Modern Art uses social media to reach its audience, as director Annie Fletcher explains. We have things like a long listen on a Sunday, and I would imagine that a lot of people who love podcasts anyway, or who are interested in art, might make some time for that on a Sunday morning, or whenever they feel like they have time to listen to incredible archive material or long interviews with artists. And then we do an awful lot on Instagram, and we have uh, Emma we wake in the morning with Emma. We have Hidden Talents, which is showing what many staff do in terms of their own creativity. Although digitisation predated this current crisis, it has proved incredibly helpful since the museum had to shut its doors. We relaunched the website uh, two years ago and it was a fantastic opportunity to think, how do we create virtual communities? We've always been really proud of all the communities we have at Emma, but indeed, how do we reach out globally, nationally, locally? So blogs, archive material. Uh, We've been lucky enough, like most of the cultural institutions, to have received money to digitise our archives over the last few years. So huge work has been going on behind the scenes. And weirdly, this is the moment when we can get it out there. 
galleries are trying to encourage their visitors to be creative themselves. Fiona Carney is director of the Glucksman Gallery in Cork. Well, we figured that this place would normally be humming with creativity, so how could we enable people to do that at their kitchen table? So our fabulous education team have devised a daily activity for you to do at home, and just things, small things that you can do to just keep your time, keep you occupied, and actually then engage with our team. So they're online, waiting to hear what you've done, waiting to see what you've done, and when you share your pictures with us, we're kind of, kind of giving you feedback and asking you how you found the activity. The major museums and galleries, including the National Gallery of Ireland, have been using online material and social media for some time now, but not all bodies have the same resources and indeed not every museum goer is internet literate. Gina O'Kelly of the Irish Museums Association says they are taking this audience into account as they plan for the weeks ahead. Really a huge concern though is about how we engage with those people who are not internet savvy and who are not able to connect for different reasons. Some of the museums in the sector are reaching out to other different collectives and organisations in order to um, in order to circulate printed material to those people because part of it as well is that museums generally work with quite vulnerable people in society and it's really important for us to continue to connect and provide those services to those people. And that was Gina O'Kelly ending that report from Sinead Crowley. You can see more of the exhibition A Consummate Joy by Barty Carr on the Irish Museum of Modern Art YouTube channel. We're going to turn finally to our reporter, Kian McCormick, because kian has been looking at the community response to the, the sudden change in the way we live over the last number of weeks. Kian, you're looking at the critical role of men's sheds today who are launching a campaign called You Can't Call In, But You Can Call. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this campaign, it's about 10,000 members of men's sheds around Ireland being mobilised to stay in touch with people who are social, social isolating themselves to avoid illness. The Men's Shed Association says this is crucial during tough times like we're going through at the moment. Here's its CEO, Barry Sheridan. Today, men's sheds are launching a campaign and we're asking every person in the country to pick up your phone and call someone at risk of severe social isolation. We're calling it, you can't call in, but you can call. And what we've seen is examples all around the country of people offering to do shopping for neighbours, but sometimes it's that chat that people can miss out on. And we want people to physically have that conversation with someone in their community uh, on a daily basis. We can't meet up now, and that's a hugely challenging. We have had men who, for for some of them, the shed was their connection. It was their connection to other people. It was their social connection. And it was a highlight for an awful lot of these men's uh, weeks and sometimes their days. So this campaign get asking people to physically call and, and do that via video if you can, because if you can see someone's face, it becomes a little bit easier then as well. But to have that call on a daily basis to someone who's close to you. Our, our members in our sheds are doing that on a daily basis, talking to each other. And what we're trying to do is trying to get them to use as a prompt, you know, that cup of tea in the morning. When you're making your cup of tea and you're sitting down, pick up your phone at the same stage and call that neighbour or call that family member or call someone in your community that you think could do with a call and just have a chat. That's Barry Sheridan there. Do the members think it's a good idea, Kian? 
They do, Audrey. So, for example, in Kilbagan in County Westmead, the man shed there is getting around not being able to meet up every day or every couple of days by having a buddy system where its members stay in contact on WhatsApp or over the telephone. So yesterday, I got a chance to earwig over one of those uh, WhatsApp buddy conversations between 75-year-old Mick Rush and 64-year-old T.P. O'Gorman. Here's what happened. Hey, Mick. Hey, T.P. Hey, me. Well, Again, yeah. But I'll tell you what, the internet is very bad. Is what's it like down your end? No, it's pretty cool. I think I'm okay. Yeah, I can hear you clear as a bell. Very, very bad speed this morning. Now I can just just about stream Netflix. So you're very techie, aren't you? You're really this hour of the morning. You're too techie for me now. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? This is Kian McCormack here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I'm butting into this conversation. You hear the voices of T.P. O'Gorman and Mick Rush. First, T.P., this is typically what you'll be doing now because the members of the Kilbagan Man Shed can't meet up. Can you explain to me what's happening? We're just about a week into the non-meeting at the shed and so on, maybe a little bit more. We're trying to create a, a WhatsApp group and get as many of the men as possible to join that group and that we can chat and talk to each other. Are there a lot of people isolated in the men's shed? Uh, there are. Now, what I suppose what I'd say to that as well is, like, a lot of the men have good family support around them. Like, they're quite okay, if you like. It's for the men, maybe, that are just that little bit more isolated in terms of even location-wise. They're, they're living in a, in a quiet kind of an area. And they really, you can sense that they are really struggling with it in terms of just that whole lack of contact with people and so on and 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 the nervousness associated with it i suppose the second thing i'd say in terms of all the men in the shed and this applies i'm sure across the country we're very resilient we've come through a lot in our lives in terms of all sorts of different crises and up and down and that's one of the things i think that stands to us now is that we're while we're nervous i'm nervous and i know my family around me are nervous and so on but we can't let it quell us completely we can't let it overtake us because if it does we're banjaxed we're going to try and get through it as best we can i think we're getting great advice and if people follow the advice well look you know we have a great great chance of getting through this and coming out the other side McCrush. uh the only thing i would add to the conversation today would be how can we educate the younger people to go with this social distancing because even still they're gathering, congregating in groups, they're walking up the street in groups. What can be done to make them understand to follow the rules? What do you think the solution is? You need to explain to them that, look, if you don't keep the social distancing, if you don't keep apart, you're going to go home, you're probably going to infect your parents, your grandparents, what have you. How are you going to feel next week or a couple of weeks' time if you're looking down into a, on top of a coffin that there's a loved one in? How are you going to feel about that? It has to be a hard lesson taught, you know. It's as stark as that, Mick Rush and T.P. O'Gorman, and there's a longer version of that WhatsApp call available as a Morning Ireland Extra podcast after the programme this morning. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.